Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Getting today's episode up a little late again this week. My apologies. I uh, had a lot to do yesterday and the day before and just just was not able to, to... Poor planning on my end is what it comes down to. But I'm getting it out and, you know, it, it's worth the wait. Chris Fisher is an alumni of the show. He was on back... Back on episode 825 when he climbed 400,000 feet of elevation in a single month. That is absolutely insane. Start doing the math and start doing, you know, what it takes to climb a few thousand feet on a trail, the physical effort, and do the math to where it adds up to 400,000 feet. It's insane. Uh, Well, today he's topping that because we are talking about climbing every Colorado 14er in winter, and there are 58 Colorado 14ers. Those are, by the way, if you're not from you know an area with mountains, those are mountains that are over 14,000 feet. Uh, and there's no mountain over 15,000 feet in Colorado. They all kind of like top out right at that 14,000 foot level. So there's like, it's a huge deal to climb them all. There's 48 of them, like I said. Now you go down to 13ers, there's like 600 of those. And there are people that climb all those as well. But the 14ers, doing them all is definitely like a bucket list item for thousands of people in Colorado and around the country and around the world. Chris does all of them in winter in a single winter in a single season and is only the second person in history that we know of to do that and by the way he got the record by 12 days and that includes a trip to texas in the middle of this trip to sell his truck and swap it out for a van uh and unfortunately to attend his grandfather's funeral and go back out there and get back on the mountains in these unbelievable conditions so this is one of those stories that's definitely on the crazy inspiring scale, not necessarily on the most relatable to a lot of us, but you're going to find the stories fascinating. Chris is a, a beast, and here's a story. Let's go ahead and dive in. All right, folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast today. Today we got an alumni, alumni on the show, Chris Fisher. Chris joins us. Uh, he was on episode 825 talking about what it was like to climb 400,000 feet of elevation in one month, but we got a whole different story today. But but Chris, you're not coming from the Colorado 14ers right now. Where are you at right now and what are you doing? Right now, I'm over in Red Rocks, right outside of Vegas, um, and climbing around, scrambling around like the Red Rock sandstone peaks for the past couple weeks now, and yeah, just enjoying being away from the snow. <laughs> oh man! So you you did? I mean, that is a crazy adventure what you just got done doing. But you're taking a break from the snow. Has it been a not? Have you been thawing out? Like, has it been nice to get out of the snow, or is it like, are you ready again to get back in it? Because there's plenty out there. Yeah, there's plenty out there. Honestly, kind of back and forth. Uh, the winter 14ers kind of burnt me out on the season, even though there's just so much snow and great skiing to be had everywhere. I don't know. I'm kind of transitioning to more of the running right now for the season. I've kind of had my uh, play in the in the snow and cold, although I, I, I love skiing. It's like my favorite activity to do. I'm, I'm just kind of a little burnt out on it. You know, the last time we were talking, I don't know, you did have this idea in place of wanting to do the winter Colorado 14ers, but you were 
Just wrapping up, one of the craziest months I think anybody's ever had of climbing all, you know, nearly half a million feet. How how soon after that did you do this adventure? Was that, I mean, it, your body must have been pretty wrecked after that. Yeah, that was about a year and a half ago now. And so when I think when we talked last, I was considering going for the Colorado 14er ski record and trying to ski them all. Um, I ended up not going for that and just kind of started adventuring um, in the backcountry and, you know, climbing stuff throughout the summer. But yeah, a year and a half later, just about, you know, three months ago now, um, maybe a little less than that, I started climbing for the 14er record and finishing the 14ers in general because I hadn't finished them in the summer before. So only one other person had finished the 14ers in one calendar winter. Right. I don't know. Why, why do you, why did you feel like you were the person to go after this crazy challenge? You know, after kind of having the idea of doing ski record about a year and a half ago or whatever, um, and putting that on the back burner and then coming around and figuring out that there is a, also like a calendar winter record. Um, actually, well, me and Aaron, my partner, were driving back from Guadalupe National Park after a 24-hour epic uh, FKT adventure that we just did. We were listening to Andrew Hamilton's podcast about his winter 14ers. And as soon as we started listening to it and finished the episode, I was like, oh, I'm going to do that. And this was like, <laughs> One month before I started, I was like, yeah, everything else is dropped. That's what I'm doing. As long as my foot's – I had a pretty beat-up foot after the Guadalupe thing. And I was like, as long as it's not broken, I'm going for the 14ers this winter. And that's kind of how it all started. You know, it's like I had the idea of skiing them all at one point, and I would still like to do that. But then it turned into, you know, just having, just thinking about, like, the skills that I've built through over the past year and a half-ish – um, with scrambling, climbing, and endurance, and skiing in the backcountry, and all this kind of stuff, it just made sense to put it all together and do it for an epic winter adventure. You know, what skill would you say was was the biggest gap in your arsenal? For a lot of these peaks, you were doing for the first time, and there's not nearly as much information on doing them in the winter. What what, what were you kind of most maybe worried about going into it? Um, I think anything to do with winter travel, especially in Colorado, like the most worrisome factor is probably avalanche terrain and like how to mitigate the snowpack and terrain in general. Um, so that's probably like the biggest crux of the whole thing. Everything else, like skill wise, you know, when it comes to scrambling and endurance, I kind of already had that. Although scrambling with crampons and ice axe in hand was kind of new to me and using some rope up in the high alpine was new to me. And so like learning those things while I went was really cool and a lot of fun. But yeah, I mean, for the most part, the hardest part's definitely uh, the snowpack and avalanche conditions. I mean, Colorado is notoriously known for having such dangerous snowpack. And so it, it's at that point, it turns into like more of a luck factor. It's like, is, is this winter going to provide you the windows that you need to climb them all safely enough? You know, that's kind of what it comes down to. Andrew Hamilton had the record. Did, did you tell him that you were going to do this or did you just start saying, you know, you listen to the podcast, you're like, I'm just going to go for it. Cause you know, obviously he'd have a lot of great information for you being the only other person who's done this. Yeah, you know, there's, I think I'm the 20th finisher, like overall. And you know, now it's only me and him. I've got it in the single winter, but we, me and Aaron are running around in Boulder and we were heading up to go scramble one of the flat irons. And we actually ran past Andrew and Andrea and I introduced myself and I told him, Hey man, I'm going to go for the winter 14ers. <laughs> and he was like, okay, whatever, dude. 
And then uh, a few weeks later, you know, like two or three weeks later, right before I started, like the day prior or something, I posted on the Instagram and like shouted him, shouted him out saying I was going to attempt his record and all that. And so we ended up actually getting together and chatting, not getting together, but like chatting through the phone for pretty much the entire effort. You know, after any big day, um, he would reach out and, you know, congratulate me or just be super kind and like help with beta or whatever else I needed. And ended up, you know, joining in on a couple of the harder peaks near the end of the whole project, which, which was super cool. I mean, um, yeah, super rad dude. And he was very supportive of the entire thing from the beginning. All right. So you decided to do this. Not a lot of time between the decision and actually kicking off. What what was most critical for you to, to get ready? I kind of just i'm gonna start this day like three days before you know i knew it was gonna happen soon i was just kind of like all right i'm gonna start now and honestly i had already been skiing and like building up somewhat like a backcountry base you know putting in three to five six k days on my skis and so um i was kind of already transitioning into the whole snow snow climbing thing but i didn't really have to do a whole lot i mean i guess the most part i did was build out some routes and stuff in Caltopo and kind of have an idea of like what my uh, routes were going to be, you know, about half the peaks, maybe a little more than half the peaks you can climb without tr- uh, crossing any avalanche terrain and without any danger. And so the idea was just to build a bunch of routes around like the safest, you know, uh, slopes and stuff. And so I did that for a few days building out routes and I ended up actually like not following hardly any of those routes that I built. So, you know, all the logistics I did prior to the project starting kind of just, it helped a little bit, but honestly, I had no idea how much it was going to take and how much effort logistics and everything else it was going to take until I really started diving into the meat of it. Did you just start with whatever mountains were closest to you? Actually, we started with Pikes Peak. That was the first one that we started with on January 6th. We climbed that. Uh, and then the second day, we decided we we're just going to go over to the Crestones. We kind of were just bouncing around to wherever the weather looked decent. And anywhere it had a good weather window. I had a couple weather guys that were helping me out. Uh, Seth Lennon and Chris Tomer were both, like, watching weather patterns and helping me out with all that kind of stuff. So it was really cool to have them, like, help support the logistics of, like, weather chasing. But pretty much just kind of went where the weather or said to go or where the snowpack was less dangerous and if i couldn't get a good weather day and then going somewhere where i walked through avalanche trains so like day two we ended up going for the crestones and we uh aaron so aaron actually started the project with me and then 27 peaks in got frostbite and dropped out so me and her day two went into the crestones and we didn't bring snowshoes or skis because one week prior, a couple people climbed the mountain and there was no snow on the entire approach and the mountain in general. And so we're like, oh yeah, it snowed a little bit. It can't be that bad. Sure enough, we're like wallowing through waist deep snow for like eight hours and we end up turning around. And we're like, oh, well, we learned some big lessons. You know, you got to have your snowshoes or skis every day just in case. And then we went for like uh, Tabawash, Chavano, Antero link up over in the, the Sawatch, which is like the first part of Nolan's. But yeah, I mean, like after day two and learning some of those lessons, we just chased weather and um, we pretty much swept through the entire Sawatch, Mosquito, 10 mile front range peaks, which were like all like the easier, less technical, don't have to cross into much avalanche terrain at all. And did those for the next 17 days. I think we climbed uh, like 26 peaks in 17 days with one day of rest in between, um, kind of kicking the whole thing off. 
you, you, you mentioned day one Pike's Peak and then day two, some of the, uh, the Sangres, the Cresto, and, and you got turned around. What, what, what happened? I mean, I'm looking at some pictures and it looks like Crestones, uh, the Crestone group was just, it looked like just a even layer of shiny frosty <laughs> yeah. ice all over it. It was like, I've never seen the mountains look quite like that. That must've been frigid up there. Like what turned you around? Well, actually it was really warm, but it snowed like two days prior and the mountains were caked and there was just rime all over the road or all over the mountains. But what turned us around essentially was we didn't bring snowshoes or skis because we didn't think it snowed that much. And so we were just sinking to our ways and wasn't able to move much. We were following somebody else's trench that ended up walking up prior to us and we followed them and they ended up going the wrong way. And so once we got to the top of this like little shoot pular, me and Aaron looked at each other like, all right, well, we didn't, we didn't bring flotation. We're not anywhere near the climb. So let's get the hell out of here and we'll try again. You know, maybe we'll go somewhere where it's a little easier <laughs> to, to kick this whole thing off. That's a, that's a big deal on day two though, to, to not summit on two peaks that you really wanted to, or at least a few. <laughs> what, what was that already putting doubts in your mind about like, Oh man, did we, did we get, you know, into something that that's much more difficult than we realized? Yeah, it kind of it kind of threw some thoughts out there, like, huh, maybe this isn't the right thing. But you know, the funniest part—I don't know about it's funny, but kind of the coolest part about the whole thing is that was the only day I turned around again. Like, I didn't have any other failed summit days after that, and so I learned a whole bunch of lessons and kind of applied them to the rest of the days. And that that day definitely showed me that this is going to be a big task. Also, did every other day after that, but um, that was a big eye opener of like you got to have snowshoes or skis or some kind of flotation to, you know, maneuver around these mountains. You didn't go back up that group, the Crestones, uh, until like almost 30 days in. Um, so you had to just like yeah. abandon that area for a while. Um, but tell us about right around two to three weeks in, you, you, did you get food poisoning or did someone in the group get food poisoning? And, uh, right. and also tell us a little bit about like who was with you, how much you were alone, but tell us the food poisoning incident. Yeah. So getting ready to go up and climb, um, Blanca Ellingwood and it was me, Aaron and another buddy, um, Dan, who was joining us. I, I think he goes by Daniel, either way, Dan, Daniel, we were getting ready to go climb. I think it was like a 3 AM, 2 30 AM start or something like that. And me and Aaron ate at some pizza shop and, uh, Alamos the night before and, that must have been what did it, but pretty much I woke up not feeling great. We had like a short, small hotel room, first hotel we've had in almost three weeks. And I pretty much woke up feeling horrible. And as soon as we started, uh, pretty well, I guess I could just say I was blowing the toilet up, you know, just like straight diarrhea, not fun. Um, right off the bat in the morning, I'm like, man, this is not the way I want to start the day after for, for a big climb. And we get like a mile, mile and a half up the road. They're charging. I'm like, feel like I'm about to die, like super weak. And then once I catch up to them, because they wait on me for a little bit, I just started puking my guts out everywhere. And I was like, all right, this is it. I got to turn around. And so I don't really consider it like a failed summit day because it wasn't like, you know, the weather conditions or anything like that that turned me around. It was simply because I was sick of shit and I couldn't continue on. Um, and so, yeah, that, that really took a lot out of me, uh, made it down and pretty much puked my guts out and sat on the toilet for the next day and a half or two and pretty much spent 
a week recovering. I was planning on planning on, I still did driving to Texas to trade my truck in for a van as well as go to a family uh, funeral. Uh, my grandpa passed away. And so I was, I had the plan to be at the funeral for, you know, over a month and I was going to make sure I was there. And so I got food poisoning, three days of being sick, drove to Texas, traded the van in, funeral, drove back, bad weather. And so that was like a nine-day period of not climbing anything. And that was kind of mentally probably one of the lower points of the entire project. You know, it's like I just got done climbing 26 peaks in 17 days, and now it's been nine days and I haven't climbed a single, you know, mountain. Um, So it was kind of a hard groove to get back into you know i've been in this groove and just day in day out grinding and now it's turned into well it's been nine days since i've climbed so <laughs> yeah that was a, a hard transition for sure you know i'm sorry to hear about your grandfather thanks man it sounds like uh, i i use this term a lot like between the two worlds that people find themselves it sounds like just maybe whiplash for you like mentally and physically and just uh, that's a huge difference for your body to go from being in the cold moving for 17 days and then just driving for days on end or you know right back to texas doing all dealing with all that while also trying to complete this challenge were you still on track to to beat this record and on, like the clock was running during this time right right so calendar winter is december 21st through march 20th and i started on january 6th and I think Andrew, when he started it, he was, it took him 84 days. He started right around the very beginning of winter. And so as long as I finished before winter ended on uh, March 20th, I would have broken the record regardless. So like what turned in my original goal was 50 days. And so what turned into a 50 day push uh, started slowly. I came to the reality of, I'm just going to try to finish this within winter and I'll still get a record. Although it's not, it turned into not much about like the record school and all, but it turned into much more of like the journey and the experience and the friendships that I made more so than just a record. Um, and so like after I accepted the fact that, you know, I'm just going to chase weather windows and just play it as safe as possible and just finish this thing. Um, it was, it was pretty easy to accept that, that I wasn't going to probably finish it in 50 days. I just think it's crazy. There was a nine day trip to texas trading out the the, <laughs> the truck so why the why the transition from a van to a truck oh, i'm sorry truck to a van gosh i'm, I'm, a, I'm yeah, doing a horrible that makes job more sense. with the details no dude interview. you're good that actually makes more sense yeah <laughs> like 16 of the 17 days um in a row like just cold as shit. i mean waking up in zero degrees and crawling out of the back you know taking in an hour to warm up and get her boots warm and make food build it out my dad helped me build like a bed platform that's actually what i'm sitting in right now there's nothing built out just they've got a bed platform and it works so way better waking up in a van where i can turn the van on heat it up cook eat get warm put all my stuff on inside instead of doing it outside so that ended up being a huge advantage to like comfort outside of just climbing itself you know so you had something to, to come back to Tell us about approaching some of these mountains because, you know, there's, there's some of these 14ers that are hard to get to even when there's no snow. What was that like right. in, the, in the middle of winter trying to get there and in a van? Like, were you able to get to, you know, the parking areas you were trying to get to or at least as close as you wanted? Or did you have to find yourself uh, going farther and farther down mountains to park? 
Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Um, there's only a couple times where the van might have gotten me a little less far further than like my truck would have, but for the most part, I mean, with the winter conditions, none of these roads to the trailheads are maintained, and so pretty much you just park at the lowest part you can drive up to where the snow begins and start skidding from there. I mean, a lot of the approaches were miles longer than they would be in the summer, and I, I think I did a total of like 621 miles or something like that. I don't know the exact mileage for summer 14ers, but it's a lot less than that, I can tell you that. And so a lot of the approaches on foot, you know, skins, snowshoes, whatever it may be, were pretty hefty. I think, uh, you know, you got Chicago Basin, which is a 41-mile 41 41-mile 41 day, and it's like that in the summer regardless, but now you got to do it in the snow, and so – it's like 15 or 16 miles just to get to the base of those mountains. Um, and so I actually had a buddy, Scott Simmons, who joined me for the approach. He ended up having a really bad frostbite in his feet. So he turned around about 15 miles in and he took his boots off. And I'm like, dude, you're crazy. I don't know why you're out here right now. Um, and so he, he joined me for like 15 miles on the approach. But, you know, that took us, I don't know, four or five, six hours to get up to the approach. And that was a 21 hour day. Um, just full through i ended up finishing it out climbing the four peaks by myself and walking the whole way out except for the last three miles i had another buddy brent herring join me for the last three miles of the exit and so yeah i mean like typically that would only be maybe an eight hour day on foot with the train access and stuff if that but yeah it's definitely uh like one of the conclusions i came to or realizations i came to really early on was that even with similar mileage or a little more mileage, all these peaks were going to take much more time and effort, at least twice as long for the most part, if not three or four times, you know, as long as it would take in the summer. And your was your goal to not spend a night out there, or were you also spending some nights out in the backcountry? I spent zero nights out there. Um, I thought there might be like one or two days where I would have to like Chicago basin and maybe somewhere in the Elks, but it ended up being not that way. And after talking to some people that have done the Chicago basin and single pushes, it sounded like a single push was the move, you know, since the 400 K thing I've done, I think uh, three 24 hour FKT traverses up high by myself or with somebody else. And I've done like a 66 hour push without sleep. And so I knew that I have like I know that I have like the energy or not energy but like capability of pushing for a lot of hours on end. And I knew that most of these would not take like there was only two twenty one hour days or a couple eighteen hour days, but I knew besides like those two twenty one hours, there was nothing that was gonna be longer than that. And it just didn't make sense to me to go and camp somewhere and sleep for four or five, six, whatever hours just to get a little bit of rest. It just didn't make sense. I'd rather just suffer and then get back to my van or truck and sleep comfortably. One of the craziest stories we've ever had. So, you know, there, there's some <laughs> legendary mountains as far as uh, difficulty, the 14ers in the summertime, there's the, the, the one element that does come into mind in the summer are thunderstorms uh, as like right. one variable. But for you, one of the variables that may or may not add challenge is darkness because the days are much, much shorter. You know, you're, it's probably getting dark around four thirty, five o'clock, very extreme weather, blizzards, whatnot. And I know you're watching the weather, trying to avoid those situations. Was there, 
was there a mountain or a set of mountains or, or, or a few that you would say were uh, the difficulty was higher than the rest? Like anything stick out to your mind is like, uh, you know, that, that, that was the crux. Yeah. So there's like one, two, three, five, that I would say were the hardest. And I think the hardest out of all of those five, which I can go into each of those stories. They're all great. I think the hardest out of each of those, uh, so those mountains would be Capitol, the Bells, Pyramid, and then Mount Wilson, El Diente Traverse. Those were the five hardest days I had. And the hardest out of all those was the Maroon Bells Traverse. Uh, Andrew actually joined me for that, and we outbacked it together. And so that was our my second 21-hour day. That was the only other 21-hour day that I had. It was like 14 minutes faster than Chicago base with like 10 less miles or something ridiculous and a lot less vert. But yeah, uh, the approach is like 11 and a half, 12 miles just to get to the base of the Gunsight Couloir on the west side of uh, North Maroon. And then you climb up like a class three, class four scramble up the northwest ridge to North Maroon. And it's really windy that day. It was about 40, 50 miles an hour, like gusts and probably 30 plus sustained. So it was it was pretty hefty winds and just kind of gloomy. But we, you know, carried rope um, for the traverse. There was a couple... I don't know, if you've ever been up on the Traverse, it's pretty gnarly. That was my first time on it ever. And in the summer, it would be so much fun, I'm sure. In the winter, it's a little more spicy. You know, you got the wind blowing and howling. You got snow and ice and crampons on and an ice axe in your hand. It's a little more full on. So we ended up taking, I think, six hours for the out and back on the Traverse. Um, and we repelled two chimneys. Uh, it kind of turned into a whole thing. Like I repelled one chimney, the rope got stuck. Andrew did offer to climb up, up, climb back up and fix the rope, fix the rope, grabbed it. And then we repelled like another chimney crux and left the rope there so we could up climb it. And he up climbed the rope hand over hand pretty much. And then belayed me up. And then, yeah, I mean, it's just kind of a really exposed ridgeline of using mixed skills when it comes to like high alpine rope use and repelling and climbing and, kind of just withstanding the wind. I mean, it was really cold. The wind was really doing a number to us. And on top of that, he's, <laughs> we're both like on the same page with like eating and drinking water. Once we get into a groove, we just forget and don't drink anything. I think we both had less than half a liter of water through the entire 21 hours. And I think he had like a half a gel for food and I had maybe 500 calories. <laughs> so we were, we were like ultra suffer on the way out. And on the way out, you can't, it's, it's not steep enough to really ski. Like you can ski down the gun site and then a little bit of the out, but then the rest of it, you got to pretty much walk the whole way. And so it turned into a really long night of just walking for miles and just, it never got shorter. And that was probably the crux of the entire thing. Although it's like capital was, you know, I climbed Capitol with a buddy, Matt Randall. He's a, he does a bunch of big missions out in Pakistan and like ski mountaineering and stuff. And he climbed Capitol once in the winter by himself uh, a few years back. And Capitol was like the first of those handful of like really, you know, tech, technical peaks. Right. And so we went up together and the knife edge is like one of the notorious sightings on the 14ers up in Capitol or whatever. Uh, he led the way for the most part and pretty much it just turned into kicking off cornices off that knife edge and then just, you know, not falling. Um, and then the, the last part of Capitol in the summer, you typically like skirt around the ridge and go up like a different little face gully thing. And since there's so much snow and all this sliding rock, there was, that wasn't really an option as like the avalanche danger is kind of high. And 
we didn't want to risk the snow breaking out and just falling for, you know, over a thousand feet to our death. And so we ended up having yeah. to go Ridge proper, you know, he's leading them pretty much the entire route, doing a lot of the snow work and finding the, the route up and there was a storm rolling in and it was starting to kind of get a little snowy and a little white outish. And we're probably like 150 feet away from the summit, something like that. And he wanted to turn around. It was way more full on than it was when he did it the first time by himself. And we just kind of had to talk for a little bit. And it came to the conclusion that we will be fine continuing on because we brought rope to repel these cruxes. And so we don't have to down climb them. As long as we get up them, we can repel back down them. And he ended up, you know, being stoked and cool and was super, super excited that you know, I kind of helped push him to continue on as well because it, uh, it also, like, boosted his confidence and, like, uh, ability and maybe pushing a little further sometimes. And so, uh, yeah, we ended up climbing up and we got to the summit of Capitol and it turned into a whiteout just like I expected and he expected. And it was kind of full on. Um, it was really uh, – it was really cool. It was the first time using ropes on any of these peaks, and we repelled a couple of really cool sections and made our way across an knife edge and skied out of there, and it was a great day. And, you know, after climbing Capitol, which was the first of, like, the five I was mentioning, I was like, man, there's no way it can get any harder than that. And sure enough, it got much harder. <laughs> <laughs> like, the next section of pretty difficult peaks was the Mount Wilson El Diente Traverse, and I was planning, which is another great traverse, right up there with uh, – the Maroon Bell Traverse. And so this was a solo day. I was planning on doing it with a buddy. He was dragging too much. And so I had to leave him and just keep going. And what's that conversation like? You know, is it like, hey, I, I, I'm lagging behind here. Do they understand typically? Right. Yeah, he kind of like initiated the conversation. You know, he, I had an idea that it was probably going to go that way from pretty early on. But he initiated the conversation. I was like, yeah, man, I'm a chance of getting off that ridge before dark. I just got to go. And we started really pretty early together, like 4 a.m. And we were just not making our times. And so near the saddle of Rock of Ages, which drops back down into the valley where you climb Wilson El Diente, I was like, all right, well, I'm going to keep going. He ended up going up for Wilson Peak by himself and had a great day. But yeah, he, he completely understood and like didn't want to hold me up at all. And Honestly, it worked out for the best because I ski off the El Diente North Base right after sunset in pretty much uh, flat light, steepest ski I've ever skied, super gnarly. And if we were to go any slower, just we probably would have to sleep up there because there's no way I would have skied that in the dark and I was not going to go back on, out and back the traverse. So, uh, yeah, the traverse ended up being like super full on. Um, I carried a rope so I could repel a couple sections just in case and ended up not using it. I actually like, kind of follow the summer standard route which stays more on the south side of the ridge you ridge proper for some of it but you like avoid some obstacles on the south side and, I, and you know we're looking back i probably should have stayed ridge proper and repelled the section and instead i like wallow through waist deep snow um above hanging snow fields and hanging cliffs just like holding on to rocks and making sure my foots and handholds were solid and pretty much just five and a half hours across a ridge that's like half a mile <laughs> it sounds like i mean the way you're talking it sounds like 30 people joined you on this adventure H how many people did you have uh just kind of hop in and hop out during this experience and what's the process for you 
with either people requesting to join because you know there's there's some serious danger so you can't just let anybody join you what's the process like and what was the process of asking people yeah so you know right before i started the project i had a whole list of people that reached out saying they would want to join and that that list of like 20 to 25 people that said they wanted to join i put them all into a group chat and i don't think one of them ever actually joined me um so that was pretty funny except for yeah, like that whole list, I don't think anybody ever joined me on any of them, even though like I, I put it out there like a handful of days, like what I was getting into and no one ever reached back out. So pretty much, you know, Aaron, my partner, we started it off together. She climbed 26 of the peaks with me. Yeah, actually 27 in total. She did one more at the end. Um, and then I had climbed with like five people. So I had her for pretty much half the peaks, Andrew for four peaks, um, John, Dr. John and my buddy Nick for Castle Conundrum. So that's one, two, three, four people. And then I had that dude that was doing Mount Wilson Nel Diente with me, but he was too slow and turned around. So, you know, we didn't really climb together, but uh, six. And then I had a buddy on Snapples, which is seven. Um, the buddy that walked in Chicago Basin with me, which is eight. And then I ended up running into a, a few buddies up on the Crestones when I went back there for the second time, and we climbed the needle together. And so that's three other guys, which one joined me earlier. So I think I think total I climbed with 10 people throughout the project. But, uh, yeah, I climbed 24 or 25 of the peaks by myself. A lot of those days by myself were really long, like, re- yeah, really long, hard days. Um you know, I had Andrew for the hardest days, which was the Bells and Pyramid, and I had Matt. Okay, Matt Randall as well. So that's like I think eleven people uh, for Capital. So I, I had people on like the really hard stuff for the most part, except for like Chicago Basin Quad and getting out of there, and then and, like Mount Wilson Traverse. Um, pretty much all the San Juans I did by myself, except for Snapples. And then the sand grays, I did pretty much all of those with Aaron, except for I think the only ones I did by myself in the sand grays were Kit Carson and the Crestone Peak. Wow, you know we we've been talking about the difficulty so far, like whiteout conditions, the the weather, right? Um, the, you know the crux, you know the challenges of of relationship. Tell us about some of those beautiful moments that happened. Where some things that you may never forget for the rest of your life. And you talk about six hundred miles of hiking and being on foot. You, you're you probably saw so much as far as um, yeah wilderness and weather and I don't know wildlife potentially. So what was something that re- some things that really stick out? Yeah, you know, almost every day of hiking. You know, I hiked 36 to those 72 days is what my numbers were. Um, every day, I pretty much either saw the sunset or the sunrise. And so that was really awesome to experience every day, if not both, you know. And that was that was uh, incredible to see up in the snow and the high alpine every day. Um, really cool. But then once uh, for me, because of a frostbite problem, back on my skis and as soon as i got to the san juan there was so much snow and i remember uh skidding up sunshine and it's not that tech these three aren't technical peaks sunshine red cloud handies but i remember just after like uh 20 something days of not skiing i just remember skinning up and just being so excited to 
actually be on my skis again and moving it at a pace and moving in a form that I really loved. I like almost cried because of it. It was so cool. And then I was able to ski up all those three summits and it was just beautiful. Um, there's nothing technical about it. I mean, there's a little bit of avalanche terrain, but it was decent forecast for those for that day. And so I was able to ski and just feel like I was having fun as well as like Ancapagre and Wetterhorn. I didn't ski off the summits of those, but I skied a lot of them and it was, it was beautiful. I just, yeah, all the skiing that I ended up being able to do was really incredible. Um, Staying on top of Capitol with Matt was another really high point and that I'll never forget. You know, that was kind of like the mark of the project. Like, yeah, I've got what it takes to, you know, climb these technical peaks in the winter and suffer and push through and, you know, have the skills to be able to do it. And so that was like a big eye opener and like a big crux of the whole project, a big, huge puzzle piece put into place. It was like, all right, you've got what it takes. Now you just got to, you know, get the weather windows to align to finish it up. Um, so that was, that was really cool. Um, the Chicago basin for was an, also another really epic experience. You know, at the time, right. It was right before Capitol two days before and, that was, you know, just being out there for 16 plus hours by myself. You know, I had a buddy for like the first four or five, but being out there for so long and climbing four peaks that I've never been to in the middle of nowhere where no one can come and help you or do anything for you. If something happens, it was just like a surreal experience to have by myself. And, you know, it was, it was a full epic adventure and something I'll never forget. It's just, you know, me being on top of the last peak at sunset, <laughs> watching the sun go down and when I'm about to go down this gnarly ridge and then ski out for 17 miles. And so, yeah, you know, just stuff like that really speaks to me. And then I think the most magical moment of the entire project was probably standing on top of pyramid with Andrew at the very end. Um, that was a really long, hard day. We started at like 2 AM, 2 30 or something like that. And there was four of us that started out together. And the avalanche conditions were, I forget exactly what they were, but we ended up getting up to the ridge and started triggering a few avalanches. And so, like, and the Elks had a ton of snow, and we were triggering these northwest aspect, aspects, like, remotely. And so it kind of gave us uh, an awareness of where to go and what to do and what to avoid. And we had to mitigate a lot of these, like, short couloirs and, like, wraparounds on these cliff bands and just certain things that were loaded and two out of four of us turned around one, John, he's like a Himalayan guy. He climbs Everest every year, brings people up it and stuff. And he turned around. There's a few reasons why they turned around, you know, one to let me and Andrew move at a faster pace, better pace. And also to mitigate the risk of the entire party, you know, it's like better to have two up there rather than four if something goes wrong. And so they turned around and me and Andrew kind of looked at each other and he was like, all right, man, we're going to do this. But we're not going to die. <laughs> and I was like, all right, well, that's cool. Let's not die. And, you know, Andrew was pretty nervous about it. And way more full on than when he did it. Like it was the way he was explaining it was, you know, night and day difference almost. And yeah, we, we ended up climbing and finding a, a route up this cliff band that Typically for a pyramid, you go across this big uh, cliff band ledge system around the northwest aspects to, to gain the bridge. And that was a no-go. It's like if we would have walked over there, we'd be dead for sure. And so we avoided that and went up a southwest sneak up one of these uh, cliff bands and ended up making the summit. And, uh, yeah, I just never forget standing up there with, with Andrew. I mean, having him there at the very end, standing on the last peak with, you know, the only other person that's ever finished all these mountains in a single winter was just – 
surreal. You know, I'm sitting here. I just climbed to the top of the peak with someone I've looked up to and still do look up to in this mountaineering community, uh, mainly the 14 years. You know, when I first moved to Colorado, he was one of the first names I ever came across. And probably the same for anybody else that climbs 14 years. You know, this is the guy. He's held every 14 year record you can think of and, you know, has climbed almost a thousand of them with repeats. And it's like, I'm sitting here climbing with my hero and just finished and got to the top of this peak with one of my heroes. I mean, it's like super cool. That just doesn't happen. And, uh, very often and just having him there was really awesome. And so, yeah, I'll never forget standing up there with, uh, Andrew. And then also like at the very end, you know, we got down to the parking lot, my parents and brother drove up from Dallas. And so they were there at the finish and Aaron was there at the finish and a bunch of other people. So it was really cool to, have that sense of community there at the very end of the whole whole thing. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. I was going to ask how it ended because I know with your uh, vert challenge, you had a bunch of people who joined you. Sounded like it was just such a, a spectacular way to finish. People could like meet you up there because it was hikeable. Right. Uh, but with this, it's a totally different story. But the, yeah, your family came up. Yeah. From, uh, dude, I, I'm sure they were worried for you. If they weren't worried for some of your yeah. other things, I'm sure they just, uh, this, this, this is a whole nother level of crazy. My mom was pretty excited when it was over, but I mean, even that last day, it was so gnarly. And we had service a little bit up on the ridge, like up high up pyramid. And so I'd send everybody like updates and like, yeah, I mean, there's a chance we don't make it. Like we're up here triggering avalanches and it's scary. And like, you know, you get caught in one, you might not live. And so, yeah, it was, it was pretty full on, you know, like, no, we didn't really have an idea if we were going to make it. And we finally got to the summit and I told them all, and they were all super excited and stoked. And, you know, my parents have done such a good job at pretty much being at any of my sporting events growing up. And so, like, now that they live in Texas and I'm in Colorado or wherever else, they try to make it to the big stuff, you know, like the big, big efforts that I put up or achievements such, such as this, the 400K thing. They make it make an effort to be there. And, you know, that's that's one of the, the coolest things, I think, about having them as my folks, you know, my parents. And, yeah, they they've real. it's really cool having that. And so not only do people get experience that, and I wish more people did. People do, but yeah, I think that's one of the coolest moments as well. You know, the finish line, having family there and people that you really care about to share the experience with, whether they climb the mountain or not. It's, uh, you know, if you played sports in high school or college, you know, there's there's a sl- probably a slightly larger crowd back then than there right. is now. So it, there's at least a crowd of two. You got your parents and you got your partners of so three. Wow. Yeah, you're right. I, I really love how you set up how, yeah, your heroes, the other person that did this joined you for the last summit. What a, what a cool thing for them too, to kind of pass the torch to the next person. Um, maybe you'll be yeah. asked in the future, like, Hey, can you join me for my last mountain? Um, I'll say yes. And you're like, all right. Yeah. yeah. And then you're going to have to hand it right back to me. Cause I'm going back for the title, baby. Um, right. <laughs> Yeah, maybe Andrew will ask you to join him when he tries to break your record again. Um, right, uh, right. We'll, we'll just go back and forth for yeah, the next two and... decades. <laughs> so, <laughs> so after you finish this, what's the first thing you did? I imagine you went and got some food, but like, tell us about where you went to celebrate. Um, I, I just can only I can only imagine how good that felt. Yeah, it was great. You know, it, pyramid the last day it was a sixteen and a half hour day. It was really a seventeen hours essentially. It was a really long day. 
honestly, we were just like drums and we ended up going to some, some restaurant in Basalt. My parents had a hotel there at like the Element. And so we ended up going over and meeting them for dinner. And uh, you know, when I'm doing big uh, multi-day or multi-week month projects such as 400K or this, I stay sober. So I hadn't drinking any beers or anything for, I don't know, what, 75 days or something up to this point. Not that that really matters, but like that's one of my things that I like hold true to. And I was way too tired to even drink a beer or even think about ordering a beer for the, like the, the the meal I had at the very end of that day and the finish. <laughs> but yeah, you know, it was cool. You know, I woke up the next morning and it, the, like you said, the relief and the, the feeling of waking up and not having to go climb was really awesome. I mean, even the days like I knew I wasn't going to climb during the project, I still had to wake up and like have in the back of my mind, oh, I got to go climb at some point and I had to figure out how to do it safely. And, you know, I got, you know, I'm still sitting there thinking about the weather and the climb and the, everything gets in the middle of what it takes to climb these. But the next day after the project was over, I didn't have any of that. It was like just super relieved. Like, oh yeah, I can just wake up and kind of feel like a normal human for once, you know? How long did it take for you to kind of feel normal again? Yeah, I don't know. It's like in his podcast, it's kind of the same for me in a sense. You know, whenever you do like these big, I only hiked 36 of those 72 days. And so like the last couple months or whatever of the project, the last like 45, 50 days, you know, I was hiking three or four days on, three or four days off or whatever it may be, some kind of mixed numbers like that. So I was that mostly due to weather? Yeah, that was all due to weather. Otherwise, I would have just pushed through what I could. You know, it was like I got three weather days. I got to go bang these out and I have to get these. Or, you know, but yeah, I mean, I pretty much had recovery time built into the last stretch of the project. And so, like, I never, I never had a, wrong i don't know but i haven't felt like i've needed a recover i didn't have any injuries i don't have any problems with my body right now and so like right now i feel great i mean i'm just kind of getting into running shape and i haven't really felt you know i didn't do much for the next like five days i went and skied a little bit but yeah i mean i kind of just hopped back into it it's it's hard because after doing you know 10 to 18 hour days for three months in a row you know four or five or six seven days a week whatever it may be you know, now I'm not, I can't do that. Like I, well, there's just no point of going and running for 15 hours a day. It's not going to help me. And so, yeah, I just kind of like getting used to only going out for a handful of hours a day and then having the that do whatever else may be like, just kind of be normal. I didn't, I didn't expect the project to be as big or as uh, much of a, logistic and mental and just mental physical everything in, in in the mix i mean it really was way more than i expected after listening to his podcast and being like oh yeah i can do this even though i did it i was like yeah it was just a whole lot i mean i would probably not do that again but i would do similar things again i definitely will do similar stuff but i won't do that one again Dang, man. So what is, uh, you know, I'm sure other people have asked you this and you probably get tired of it. What, what do you think is next for you? What do, what do you want to do? Oh, um, I know. You already know? Oh, I already know. I'm going to uh, go ahead and double down and go for the summer 14 year record. Oh, geez. What, what, isn't the record like two weeks or something for that? 20 days? <laughs> it's nine days and 21 <laughs> hours. Nine days. <laughs> and it, it, 21 yeah, hours. Andrew has that one too. 
Yes, I do know that. I do know that. I, actually, I think, I, I don't know if he's actually ever been on the show, which is mind-blowing if he hasn't. Did, so what, I mean, did y'all talk about that at all? Yeah, uh, I just sort of mentioning it over the past couple of weeks and he's supportive. You know, I haven't done in the summer. So I'm going to spend a lot of time scouting through June before I give an attempt up in July. But, you know, I have this unique opportunity of being able to attempt to get both in a single year. And it would feel foolish not to at least try, you know. And so I've already got the winter one. It wasn't originally my plan to go for the summer one until like two or three weeks ago. But I realized like I had this pretty cool opportunity of maybe getting the first or getting two in a year of this, you know, both winter and summer. And that may never be repeated again if I can pull it off. And so um, or at least it won't be repeated until someone gets the winter record. And then they're like, all right, well, I'm also crazy. As I'm going to do this again. <laughs> you know? so, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think, it, I think it's a cool opportunity to potentially, um, both in the year and if it doesn't work out it doesn't work out but i'm at least going to try uh you know andrew said it could probably go about a day faster than him you know probably sub nine days because he was nine days 21 hours and i i'm definitely faster on foot than him um also like you got to think like that dude can suffer for days and days out no problem i mean it's not a, it's obviously not a problem but it hurts you know being able to suffer is a different mindset in its own and I know I can suffer as well. I've done it a lot. And uh, it just kind of comes down to just grinding every day and not sleeping for nine days. And so I think with my speed and my background with pushing for as long as I have in the past and with minimal sleep, I think uh, I think it's realistic to say I could probably pull it off um, as long as logistics get dialed and everything sets up correctly. So, yeah, I'm really stoked on that. And Beyond that, I'm looking at potentially shooting for Nolans and the Sangre uh, de Cristo Traverse FKTs. And so those are kind of like huge projects. But, yeah, the main one right now is Summer 14ers. Oh, my gosh. We absolutely will have to have you back on the show to talk about that. That is amazing. <laughs> so so um, <laughs> it sounds like then if you're faster, a lot of the challenge is going to come down to like how well you plan logistically like the driving in between, yeah, you know, right. just, just setting yourself up for success in all the times you're not on foot. Right. Yeah. Logistics is like the big, the big thing with uh summer four teeters. I mean, there's kind of like one plan to follow. Now it's Andrew's like cave dog who had it before Andrew, pretty much Andrew followed his almost exact same plan. I'm pretty sure. And that's kind of the way it goes in the summer. Like to shave any time off, you got to have, you got to pretty much follow his logistics and just be faster, you know? And so that's what it kind of comes down to. Um, there might be a couple places for improvement logistics, but there's not much. I mean, they, they kind of already have it so dialed. I mean, nine days and 21 hours to climb 58 peaks. That's, that's happy. You know, it's, it's pretty much, like the idea is you're gunning the entire time. The only rest you get is you're in the car and someone's driving you to the next trailhead. Other than that, right when you get to the trailhead, it's game on. You know, that's just kind of how it goes for the summer ones. Are you, do you, do you feel like you, it's coming together smoothly? Like what, what's some big things that you need to, to get dialed in? I guess a driver is one. Anything else come yeah. to mind? Food prepared, all that? Yeah, I'm kind of working on figuring that out. So I'm in talks with my buddy Gabe over at F40 Studios. We're potentially going to pitch a short film deck to a bunch of my sponsors and see if we can get it funded. 
And if so, we're going to try to build a short film around the whole thing. And so ideally it'll all be funded and we'll have someone that can cook and meal prep for us as well as, you know, be support crew. I'd probably have like, hopefully Aaron's available during that week and come help support as well as like maybe my dad or somebody like that, but another buddy or two. But I don't think it'll be too difficult to find uh, a support crew for me, even if we don't do the whole film thing. So logistics wise, I just got to come up and, you know, chat with Andrew a little bit more, figure out mapping and like plans to like pretty much follow exactly what he did. So I really just need to go and pick his brain a lot and then go scout some of these bigger routes, like the Elks and the Sangres and some of the San Juan routes that I haven't done in the summer just to kind of get a feel for which ways to go. Cause I'll be taking different routes in the summer than I would in the winter. And so I'd like to go at least have an idea of the layout of like what I'm getting into um, for a lot of those peaks, which, you know, the majority of these 14ers are pretty straightforward, but there's a good couple handful that aren't. And so I want to make sure I have those dialed before going for it. I mean, so many of those are just going to be a walk in the park in comparison. Right. Uh, you're like, I remember this in a whiteout conditions yeah. at night <laughs> just a few yep. months ago. You know, it, it's unbelievable how, how much it's going to change. I know California has had like record breaking snowfall. How, how, what's the snow yeah. situation like in Colorado right now? Cause I've been on 14ers in the middle of July that were, had snow, decent amount of snow still on them. Right, right. I would imagine there's going to be snow on a lot of the Elks and San Juans. Um, pretty much. I don't know. Uh, Aaron's over in Salida right now, and she was saying Sawlox looks pretty dry. And I would imagine the sand grade is pretty similar. So hopefully those are pretty melted out by the time it comes around. I think for the most part, there's going to be snow. I'm going to shoot for like mid-July to late July. And so I, there will definitely be some snow, but I'm just hoping like the majority of the routes aren't completely snow covered. Um, we haven't had record-breaking season. They've been close in the San Juans, and I think somewhat close in the Elks. But there's definitely more snow than there's been in the past couple of years, and so it's definitely going to you know, change a little bit for like the summer uh, routes and stuff like that. But who, but who knows? You know, Maybe I can find a, some of these peaks and run up the ridge and then glissade down a face and just take no time to get down. So There you go. Hey, that, that's one way to save some time. Maybe there's an advantage with a little more right. snow. Um, that is funny. Well, I tell you what. I was going to ask like time frame, like mid July to, to win. And I'm like, Oh yeah, it could, it could only be nine days later. So whenever you start, it's pretty much just a week after that is what you're trying to yeah. shoot for. So it's not like a multi month. You could almost attempt it a couple times if it doesn't go well. Um, that is insane. Well, definitely keep us posted. Well, Chris, well, thank you so much. Anything else you want to share with listeners before we, before we jump off? I appreciate a little bit extra time too. Um, Pretty much covered all all the key points you know just more so if you got ideas or goals or plans or projects you want to do and dream projects go chase those goals you know nothing stopping you but yourself so go out there and do your thing absolutely and for anyone that wants to like visually see definitely check out chris's uh instagram he has a really good uh just kind of recap of everything every day it's like gosh man a couple dozen posts of just like each day's pictures and summits and it, it's just a really good overview it helps you visually see just how insane some of this looked like and I, it's only pictures so it doesn't even do it justice and, uh, <laughs> yeah not even taking pictures at the worst moments so it's it, it's right. a beautiful amazing fantastic challenge man well congrats again on such another big adventure it's just kind of like a, you know we're gonna have to check in every year and see what you've done 
Uh, this is awesome. <laughs> so thanks so much. Yeah, enjoy, enjoy climbing down in Red Rock. Enjoy the heat. Of course, dude. It was great chatting with you as well. Yeah, we'll Always talk soon. To yeah, for sure, man. All right. See you. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.